So even though we we tend to think of this as the end of the week, in actuality it's the beginning. And uh, I believe that I will, my week has started well. I will remember all of this upcoming week, I believe, hearing your voices this morning as we sang together. I'm thankful for the worship team and for their leading of us in song this morning and thankful for all of you as you sing out to the Lord in praise to Him. That is encouraging. We don't give enough to the ministry of presence, being together, being present, and worshiping together, and that is an encouragement and a help to all of us. So I I believe that one of the main purposes of pastoral ministry, one of the main exercises of pastoral ministry is to present theological truths from God's Word and then exhort God's people to those truths. It's not merely to teach and give information. It is to teach and exhort to that teaching, to help explain how that teaching impacts their lives and how they should respond to that teaching. And I've said a few times that this letter from Peter that we are going through is a pastoral letter. And he had a pastoral ministry. And there is a series in this letter of teaching segments where he does just that, where he gives us theological truths and then he tells us how to respond to those truths. There was, we've already been through one of them. And if you were doing an outline, you could roughly take it from about verse 3 to verse 12 in 1 Peter 1 where he proclaims theologically what God has done. Here is what God has done for us. Immediately after that, from verse 13 down through chapter 2, verse 3, where we ended last week, he then tells us how we should respond to what God has done. We should live holy lives because we know what God has done and His love for us. We should respond in holiness, growing as worshipers and loving one another. And today we're going to start a new section of teaching within this letter. Today and next week through chapter 2, verse 10, Peter is going to lay out for us the nature of the church, what the church is, what it is made of, the essential nature of what it means to be the people of God. And that will be the theological foundation for the next portion of this teaching series in which he tells us how to respond and to live as the church in the world. And that's going to go from roughly verse 11 in chapter 2 all the way through chapter 3 and verse 12. And here's why I'm making a deal of this for you today. After next week, we are going to enter into a series of teaching exhortations in this letter, and Peter is going to say to us some things that we are not going to want to hear. He is going to tell us to keep our conduct among the world honorable. So even if they call us evildoers, they will see our good deeds. And even if it goes all the way to the day Jesus returns, there will be a day where they will see that our faith was true because of our good works. He is going to tell us to be subject for His sake to every human institution and governing authority, unless they tell us to do something that is against His Word. That is not something any of us want to hear. 
He is going to tell us to be subject to our masters. And it's going to be a series after series of things, of teaching like that, that we are not going to want to do. But what we need to understand is that as He exhorts us to do those things, He is not exhorting us from a position of weakness. He is not telling us to simply be subject like slaves to the world. He is going to first tell us the nature of the church and the strength that we have as the chosen people of God. And then He will exhort us from a position of strength to live as Jesus did in humility and service to a world that hated Him. So it is important that we see the foundational theological truths so that we understand why we are called to live as we are called to live in this world. And so I hope that we can see that together this morning. I'm going to start us off, if you have, uh, if you have your notes before you, I'm going to start us off with this, this uh, theological statement about the nature of the church. Jesus receives and advances the worship of His church. This is, in essence, for me, kind of a summary of what Peter says in a portion of this letter or in the beginning of this section. Jesus receives and advances the worship of His church. So look in verse 4 and verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, as you come to Jesus, as you come to Him. Now, I want to remind us of the immediate context where we ended off last week. He had said to us, long for pure spiritual milk that you may grow up in the faith. And we said that that pure spiritual milk is God's Word. Long for the Word of God that you may grow up into salvation, into your faith, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And where I ended last week was to say that this this verse, taste that the Lord is good, it is a way of God saying to us, come and experience a relationship with me. I said to you last week that we sometimes pit theological integrity against experience with God. And I think that is a false, uh, a false battle that we, battle line that we draw. Good sound theology should lead you to experiences with God that are real and tangible. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Drink the milk of the word so that you can experience fellowship with God over and over again. And so he says, as you come to him, As you come to experience Him, as you come to taste and see that He is good, the the Greek verb that is used in that phrase, as you come to Him, is used multiple times in Hebrews to talk about drawing near to God in faith, to seek after Him and receive from Him. And the tense of the verb is, Not just as you come one time, but as you come over and over and over again. As you come to Christ and continually come to Christ. So he is describing what our faith should look like. Prayers daily. In God's Word continually. Worshiping together. Worshiping privately. Praising God. Serving Him. All of those things we do. We come to Him over and over and over again. As you come to Him, what happens? You are being built up. 
As you come to Him, you are being built up. This means as you draw near to Jesus and as you keep drawing near to Him, He is doing something in your life. He's doing something in your heart. You are not going to recognize it every time you pray or every time you read His Word or every time you serve. You're not going to recognize it every time. But the promise is that over time continually, He's doing something. He is building you up. He is advancing you spiritually. As you come to Him, you are being built up. Jesus receives our worship and He advances it. If you have a Bible this morning, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 7? I want us to see a verse there. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to gift you one today. And so... If you are in need of a copy of God's Word, let us know before you leave. You can let Nick know, or myself, and we will get you a copy of God's Word. But look at verse 25 in Hebrews 7. This amazing verse about Jesus. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Let's define a couple of terms there. To save means to rescue and to set free, to deliver, to heal forever. Jesus is able to rescue and set free and deliver and heal forever anyone who draws near to Him. And He is able to do this because He lives now, today, to make intercession for them. If you draw near to Jesus, Jesus serves you through intercession. That should be mind-blowing to us. That the God of the universe who made everything serves His people And Jesus serves us through intercession, which means He advocates for us. When you go before God through Christ, Jesus pleads your case like a lawyer before a judge. He pleads your case. Without Christ, the only person to plead your case is you. What I want us to know at the very beginning about the nature of the church is that everything is about Jesus. Everything in our church, in our life, it's about Him. All we have is Him. All we have is Christ. Jesus is our life. It's all about Him. He receives our worship. He advocates for us. When we come to Him and draw near to Him, He accepts us. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You draw near to Jesus, He accepts you. And He advocates for you. But He also advances your worship. He receives your worship, He advances it. He is continually setting you free. He is continually healing you. He is continually delivering you from your sins, from this world. And as He does, He is advancing our worship. So it's all about Jesus. So I want us to see, back in 1 Peter, how Peter takes Old Testament imagery from Isaiah and the Psalms 
And he shows us this truth that it is all about Jesus, everything is about him, and he does it by applying to Jesus Scripture from the Old Testament that was pointing to the Messiah. In particular, Peter says that Jesus is the cornerstone. Behold, God is laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Why? Because it's all about Him. If you believe in Him, He receives your worship, and you will never be put to shame because He spiritually advances you. He advances your worship. So I want us to take that imagery, and I want to explore it a little bit. What it means that Jesus is the cornerstone, what we sang to begin with today. Number one, that Jesus is our cornerstone means that He establishes our position. In your notes, He establishes our position. I have personally never built a building or anything of significance. However, I understand that a cornerstone is traditionally the very first stone laid for a structure or a building. And one of the purposes of the cornerstone is that it marks the geographical location of where that building will be. The cornerstone is laid and it marks the position of the building. It orients the building in a particular direction. So Jesus is our cornerstone. He marks our location, He establishes our position, and He points us in the direction that our life should go. He orients us in the right way. He does so before the Father. He is the first stone of God's new work. He reconciles us to God, and He advances our worship of God. If you want to grow as a worshiper of the Lord, it happens because of Jesus. He connects us to one another. So He orients our position before God, but He also orients us in position to one another. He connects us to each other. He gives us an example of what sacrificial love looks like so that we can love as He did. We can only do that within a community of believers. It is why as Christians we are called to be part of a church, a local church that is representative of the universal church. We are called to be in that church under the authority of the teaching of that church, as long as they're teaching the Bible, and in submission to one another. And you cannot live the Christian life as God intended without that connection inside of a local community. And not only does He orient us to the Father and to one another, but He also orients us to the world. He informs how we relate to the world to the fallen world around us. He even informs how we relate to our enemies. That new structure and that new building that Jesus was the cornerstone of changes some things. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, we spent so much time in last year, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard this said over and over, but now I'm saying to you, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. It's a new building, a new structure, a new cornerstone, a new work. One secular writer that I read this week just doing a little study 
on an architecture article said that cornerstones were often specifically chosen with a look in order to be serving as a symbol of a new era so that people could look at that cornerstone and they could see the prosperity and the opportunity that was possible at the time that that building was being constructed. Jesus is God's cornerstone. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but He was sent at just the right time to establish a new era, a new covenant, not just to symbolize it, but to establish it. And in Christ, we see the opportunity of this new structure to have peace with God and with one another and to be able to receive the blessings of His kingdom. That is what Jesus symbolizes and establishes for us. So I want to say again, when Peter says Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, he means everything is about Jesus. And I want to pause for a moment to say to us, even as we agree with that, we would put it on our t-shirts, we'd stick it on our coffee cups, everything's about Jesus, but I want to warn us that it is easy to drift from that, even religiously. I think that God has blessed us here over time with good leaders and good teachers enough that if I were to say to you, or if someone else was to come into this, to this podium and were to say to you, the cornerstone of the church, the most important thing is to be relevant to the community and the world around us. I think you would reject that. Even though there are some churches that think that way, that we, the most important thing is we have to be relevant so we can reach people. And they would make that their cornerstone. I think you would reject that. But what if someone was to say the cornerstone of the church is community? To have fellowship and love one another. That that's the most important thing. That's the cornerstone of the church. What would we think? What if someone were to say to us evangelism is the cornerstone of the church? That we, we're called to go and to reach people and preach the gospel and that's the most important thing. What about right behavior? What if someone was to say holiness? Living rightly, that's the cornerstone of the church. That's the most important thing. What if someone said doctrine? Good doctrine. That's the cornerstone of the church. That's the most important thing. Do you see, it's easy to let our thoughts about that cornerstone slide from Jesus to something else that sounds right. But Jesus and Jesus alone is the cornerstone of the church, the person of Jesus. If you have a Bible, again, go to Revelation 2 for a moment. Go to Revelation chapter 2. 
I want us to see one of the letters that Jesus wrote. He wrote seven letters to churches in Revelation. Have you ever wondered what it would look like if God wrote us a letter? What if He wrote you a letter? What would it say? What would it say if He wrote Agape a letter? We're going to read this morning what He wrote to Ephesus. Look in verse 2 as Jesus writes this to the church of Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. All of those things are commendable things, Jesus says. But then in verse 4, He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand unless you repent. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus is saying to Ephesus. Church of Ephesus, Ephesians... I love your good works. You serve each other well. You serve your community well. You do good things. I love that about you. Ephesus, you are enduring persecution. Even when people say evil about you, you're enduring it and you're enduring it well. You are being patient and you're preserving in trials. I'm thankful for you because of that. Ephesus, you can't bear with evil. You know what is true. You have good and right thinking and doctrine, and you are able to test what is true, and you can't bear with what is evil. And I I commend that about you. And then he says, but you are in danger of me taking your lampstand. You are in danger of me moving in such a way that you will no longer be a church. Why? Because you've stopped loving me. You love your good works. You love your doctrine. You love enduring. You love persevering. You love being able to be separated from the world in holiness, but you don't love me anymore. You've stopped loving Jesus and you've started loving religion and the practice of religion. Jesus is the cornerstone. Community, evangelism, righteousness, good doctrine, all of those things are critical. Don't hear me say they're not. I want you to be a part of community. I want us to evangelize. I want us to live holy lives. I want us to have good doctrine. I'm going to be held accountable one day for what I teach. But as one commentator said, labor is no substitute for love and purity is not a substitute for passion. The church must have both. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is alive right now. 
He is alive. He is a real person. You can't see him, but you can love him. You can spend time with him. He will be near you, next to you. He will speak to you. You can speak to him. Young people in this room, old people in this room, don't get caught up in the religion. Jesus is calling you to relationship. Through his word, yes. His word establishes, we're about to see that. But he is calling you into a real, abiding, living relationship with him. He's the cornerstone. Don't let him be replaced by anything else. He alone establishes our position and he forms our foundation. He is the cornerstone who establishes our position and he forms our foundation. When you lay a cornerstone, every other stone in that foundation is set in reference to the cornerstone. The cornerstone is what establishes the foundation. Again, in your Bibles, would you go to Matthew 7 for just a moment? Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching and he says something that is unnerving. He says something that shakes us. It should. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 will enter into kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who calls Jesus Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Some people will call him Lord, but they will not spend eternity with him. Why is that? Who is it that will enter into the kingdom? And he answers that beginning in verse 24 with this little parable. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. The one who builds his life on the rock, the foundation, is the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says... To build your life on the rock means you hear and you obey. And the way that I would put that is you trust Him. You trust Him. You hear what He says and you obey because you trust Him. And in 1 Peter, that verse 6, in 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, where God says that. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. That is pulled from Isaiah 28. And what was happening in Isaiah 28 is that the people of Israel were being threatened by the Assyrians. And they they knew that the Assyrians were about to attack their land, and they panicked. And God, through Isaiah, called them, trust in me, rest in me, return to me, hear my words, do what I'm saying, and I will save you. But the people of Israel, the leaders, didn't do that. Instead, they went to Egypt, and they made a pact, a covenant with Egypt, 
that Egypt would come and protect them. And God said to them through Isaiah, My wrath is coming, and it is going to be like a deadly flood. And the pact that you have made, the covenant that you have made with with Egypt will not save you. That building will not stand. The only building that will stand is the one that I build on my cornerstone. And he was talking about his Messiah and his church. And he was pointing us, Peter is pointing us to that reality, that our trust must be in Jesus. To plant, build our lives on the solid rock foundation of hearing and obeying, trusting in Christ. Do you remember? Who was the first person that we know of to declare Jesus the Messiah in a way that Jesus publicly acknowledged? Peter. Simon, who Jesus named Peter, Cephas, the rock. And he looked at Peter and he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was saying to Peter, on this rock, not Peter, but his faith and not his faith, but faith alone in Christ, trust in him. That is the rock foundation of the church. That is the foundation that hell itself cannot prevail against. If you build your life on anything else, I don't care how good it looks. We know enough in this place to know if we build our life on money or career or fame or pleasure, it's going to fall. But if you build your life on the cornerstone of evangelism or of good works or of good doctrine and you move Jesus out of the way, your life is in danger of falling as well because some people who say, Lord, Lord, won't make the kingdom of heaven. It is those who see Jesus as the cornerstone and their life is built on trust in Him because they know one day they're going to see Him. And they know that they can have experience with Him right now. And they build their life on that. And Jesus says, the gates of hell alone, no flood water, no wrath, nothing will impact this house because you trust in me. Jesus is the cornerstone who establishes our position and forms our foundation, and He transforms our purpose. This is where the analogy goes astray if we're just thinking about dead rocks building a building. Because Jesus transforms our purpose. He is called the living stone, the alive rock, the resurrected rock of God. He is greater than a dead cornerstone because He is able to give life and purpose to all of the structure attached to Him. No actual cornerstone can do that. But Jesus can. He gives us life and purpose. In John 10, He said, Church followers, know this. I have come to lay down my life for you to give you abundant life. That sounds good to us. What is abundant life? Abundant life, I believe, is described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. You were bought with a price. 
Jesus laid His life down for you, just as He said He would in John 10. And He did so, so that you could glorify God in your body, because your body is the temple of God. Here's the abundant life, that you and I become the temple of God through Jesus, and we glorify Him. And that's exactly where Peter takes this imagery. He has established your position, He has formed your foundation, and He transforms your purpose. And here's your purpose, to be the Father's house in verse 5. Let's read verse 4 and 5, just so we have this. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We come to Christ. He receives our worship. He advances our worship. He is our cornerstone. He establishes our position before God and each other and the world. He forms our foundation. He transforms our purpose. And here's our purpose. Be the Father's house. Remember the Old Testament imagery? Do you remember when the people of Israel were wandering in Egypt? Excuse me, they were delivered from Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness. God told them to build a tent, a tabernacle, and He would reside among them in that tent. One day that tent became a permanent structure called the temple. And all of the worship of God was focused at that building. To draw near to God, you drew near to that building. To love and serve God, you drew near to that building. But then Malachi 3, verse 1, made an interesting prophecy. It predicted, Malachi predicted, that one day the Lord would come to His temple because there was a point where His presence left the temple. Malachi said there's a day coming where the Lord will enter His temple, and that's what Jesus did. He did it as a baby. He did it as a young man. He, the Lord of the universe entered the temple, the temple of God. But then Jesus tells us that all that's changed now that He's here. He entered the temple, but that structure in that building is no longer the place where you meet with God. As a matter of fact, He predicted during His lifetime, He predicted while He was on the earth that in just a few decades that temple would be torn asunder. And it was. But he said, don't worry about that because I'm the new temple. The fullness of God dwells in me. When John tells us that Jesus or God dwelt among us, it literally means he tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus. So the temple went from a building to a person, but it doesn't stop there. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Now, don't you know, church, that you're God's temple and God dwells in you? So how does all this come together? Jesus is the living stone, the temple of God. All the fullness of God dwells in Him. When you are united to Christ, you too become the temple of God in which God resides. You are God's house. 
which means you're the place that God dwells on the earth in this day. You are stones that live. And if you think about that imagery, you are stones that live, and all of the time new stones are being added because God is saving people. And older stones that have already been saved, they're being purified. And this whole structure of stones, living stones, is being built up together and perfected together. That's why we love holiness as a church. Because we want the temple to be holy. And it is why we love each other. We reject the idea of individualistic Christianity because we know God's purpose is to build us together. And we are glad to be built together. I said earlier, I want to teach you truths and exhort you to them. Here's the truths, the theological truths. You're the temple of God. What does that mean? Here's my exhortation. You're the place worship happens. In your heart. In your home, in your car, in this room. It doesn't happen by the people on this stage. It doesn't happen by those singing that you listen to. It happens in your heart. True worship is in you. You're the temple. And you're the place where people meet God. What I mean by that is He has ordained that you, like a living temple, you dwell among the community and the world and people meet God through you the way people would draw near to a building in the Old Testament now God is in you, and they experience God in part through you. So that they might come to know Him, so that they too might become a living stone. You are the house of God. You are the temple of God. God delights in you. Not only are we the Father's house, but Peter also says we are the Father's priest. We are to be the Father's house, but we are to be the Father's priest as well. So you're not only the temple, church, you are also the priest serving in the temple. All believers are ministers before God. I don't know that any of us in here would fall into a different theology, but there is a theology out there among Christians that teaches. There's clergy and laity. There's ministers and there's regular folks. And the Bible teaches something far different. It teaches the priesthood of the believer. All of us are ministers before God. All of us have gifts. All of us serve the Lord. We draw near and we serve. How do we serve as priests? We are offering various service to God. He transforms our purpose to be the Father's house, to be the Father's priest, offering various service to God. I didn't put various services. I put various service. And that might be bad grammar, but you've come to expect that from me. However, I put service singular because 1 Corinthians 12 teaches that. There's a variety, or there are varieties of service. There is one service to God that His people does. They glorify Him. But there's a variety. It's varied. We each have different spiritual gifts. We're to serve within a context of a church. 
Each one of us have a, has a gift, and each one of us is called to serve God through our gifts and in other ways. What does it mean to offer spiritual sacrifices? Well, the Bible gives us a few hints. Philippians 4 says that a spiritual sacrifice is to be a giver. That when you give to others, when you give to your community, when you give to evangelism, when you give an offering, you are, you are offering a spiritual sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15 says, when you praise God with your lips, it is a spiritual sacrifice. When you sing from your heart, when you make God known, that is a spiritual sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 16 says, when you do good works in His name, that is a spiritual sacrifice. Ephesians 5, 2 says, when you sacrificially love others, that is a spiritual sacrifice. I think the point is that there's not an all in Compassing list. I think it's best summarized in Romans 12.1, which tells us to offer our whole life to God as our spiritual worship, our spiritual sacrifice. Anything you do because you love God and you want to serve Him can be a spiritual sacrifice. So here's my exhortation from that theological truth. What is your service? What spiritual sacrifices are you offering to God? What are you doing to love Him and to love others? We're going to talk more about that next week because Peter gets into it a little bit more. But for today, know that it is only through Jesus that we're qualified to serve and that our sacrifices are found acceptable to God. So here's the summary of the nature of the church for today. Everything's about Jesus. And remember, it's not a t-shirt slogan. He's the cornerstone. He orients our life. He gives us a firm foundation. We hear and obey. We trust His words and we do it. And that's the rock we build our life on. He transforms our purpose no matter what we, what else we love in this life. We should always see our primary purpose to be we are God's house and God's priest. We glorify God as His temple and as His ministers. And these truths are going to inform how we live in this world. In the weeks to come, Peter's going to say to us, again, things we don't want to hear about how we live in this life. But this is our foundation, that our aim is to please God. I want to end with this life truth today that has two parts to it. One, God uses what we would reject. God uses what you and I would reject. Look at verse 4. He's called the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So to God, Jesus is His chosen stone and precious to the world, Jesus is foolishness. He says it again in verse 6. He says that excuse me, in verse 7, that He's the stone that the builders rejected. So God uses what you and I would reject. What man ridicules, God finds precious. Now, the reason I want to pause here is because it is easy for you and I 
to assume that that's only possible in the world. The world rejects Jesus, God finds Him precious. God uses what the world would reject, God uses Jesus, the world rejects Him. That's true. However, you and I, even as followers of Christ, often will find that God uses that which we would reject. He uses circumstances in our lives that we don't want any part of. He uses people in our lives that we don't want any part of. If you read the Bible long enough and true enough, God will eventually offend you. Have you ever been around someone that you work with or that you're, is in your family or that you're married to that their ways are just not your ways? They don't think like you do. They don't act like you do. They don't, sometimes you're like, you're not even on the same page. Like I don't understand this person and their ways and we get offended by them, right? Because of course, how we do things is the right way. How we think is the right way to think. They're foolish. God and His ways are not our ways. He doesn't think as we think. And it is not up to us to transform God into how we want Him to be. It is up to us to mentally and in our hearts ascend to who God is. God will eventually offend you in His Word. He will eventually offend you by what He sends into your life. And the question is, what will you do when that offense comes? And I will make the case to you in this second part of the truth that we will rise or fall on what He has chosen. Our lives will be made better and lifted up in our submission to God and what He is doing and saying and what He has chosen in the world, or our lives will trip over it. Our very faith will. We rise or fall in submission to God or rebellion against Him. Last week we said that to obey the gospel is to believe it and repent. Remember? For those who believe, there is honor. Look at verse 7. The honor is for you who believe. If you believe, if you have faith, if you repent, if you trust in Jesus, there is honor. Your life will be made better by that. That honor is for you from God. God will honor you when you submit to Him even though He's offended you with a circumstance or a person or a word. But then look at the rest of it. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For those who disobey, for those who do not believe, for those who don't trust in the Word of Jesus, who don't hear it and do it because they trust in Him, they are going to stumble over Him. And Jesus actually quoted this in Matthew 21. Peter I am sure heard Jesus say that. And Jesus said of Himself, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. 
And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We are healed in our belief. We are broken in our unbelief. We will rise upon Jesus or we will stumble over Him. And Peter adds this phrase, they stumble because they disobey the Word, which we know they disobey because they didn't believe, as they were destined to do. If you look at verse 8, as they were destined to do, and you look in verse 6, where God has laid in Zion a stone chosen and precious, it's the same word. The word that God has laid, chosen, this precious stone, is the same Greek word that said, These people were destined to not obey God. It means appointed. They were put in that position. I think there's two reasons, probably much more, but I think two reasons we can point to that Peter said this. He's writing to a persecuted church, to a church that is feeling the pressure of a world that hates it. And when you and I are persecuted and we have people that hate us and we have people that won't believe the gospel, it frustrates us, it mourns, we mourn, we can get all out of sorts. And I think that Peter is reminding the readers that God is sovereign. He is not surprised by hostility. He's not surprised by a world that rejects Him. As a matter of fact, He is in control of it. There's no part of this life that He is not in control of. The sovereignty of God sovereignty of God is something that we wrestle with to understand. But I want you to know that God's sovereignty is always meant to comfort His church. It is not meant to confuse His church. It is not meant to bewilder or divide His church. It is meant to comfort us. Like a parent looking at a child who is in distress and saying, I have this. I'm in control. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I've got this. I think the other reason that Peter puts this is because... To those who are wandering, there's still time. Right now, there is time. You don't have to stumble and fall. You don't have to be broken by the cornerstone. Would you repent and believe, and in doing so, rise up to life? It's the calling of the gospel. Sam, you guys can come up. you guys in the booth, if y'all will bring the lights down. I know there's movement. We're getting in position to move back into worship through song and prayer. But I want to go back to what Peter's just told us.
God is sovereign. And there is time to repent. And today is that day to not stumble over the cornerstone, but to be joined to Him that you might have purpose. So I'll do something that I I don't do every week, but if you're willing and able throughout this room for a moment, would you bow your heads, would you close your eyes? I want to ask of you today two questions. One, if you came in here and your belief is you're walking with God, you're walking with Jesus, you have a relationship with Him, Has He shown you this morning that He's not your cornerstone? That you've made it something else, maybe something else this religious and good, but the person of Jesus, the idea of loving Him and having a relationship with Him, that is foreign to you right now. You don't even remember that. Maybe you had that at one time when you first became a believer, but today you don't even remember it. I want to say to you that He has brought you to this place, the sovereign God of the universe, to hear this word that you might repent and return to Him today as the cornerstone of your life. Don't be ashamed of that. You won't be put to shame if you trust in Him. You'll be put to shame if you ignore that. Don't worry about what other people might think. I don't care if you've been in church your whole life. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. This morning, would you repent that Jesus is not your cornerstone? You can do that where you are as we sing. You can come to these steps and pray. Or in just a moment, we'll have some people over here to my left that will pray with you. Or this morning, if you've come in and you know you're not a believer, you have doubts, you know you're not walking with Christ, You know you're one of the ones who disobey and disbelieve. Today, would you receive His forgiveness? Today, would you accept His call to follow Him? Would you believe and repent of your sins? Believe in Him and repent of your sins. Would you follow through in baptism as a public declaration of your faith? Those are the questions that are before us today. You can raise your head up. Would you now pray? Would you sing and worship? Would you let someone pray for you about anything at all? Nick, are you available? Can you come? Let me get Nick to come to the, to my left. Eric, are you available? Will you come? We'll have some more guys ready to pray for you if needed. Church this morning, repent and believe and then grow in your faith. Go hard after God. Pursue Him with all your heart. Love one another deeply. Look for the people that are outcasts, that are on the fringe. Welcome them in. This is holiness in Christ. Jesus, I ask now that You would help us to worship in response to Your Word. Draw out of Your people praise and affection. If we're wandering, if you're not our cornerstone today, thank you for calling us back. May we hear and respond, and may today be a day that we are restored, united with you, the living stone, our life transformed. 
Jesus, please do a work among us. Do a work in our hearts. Please help us. People watching replay later, help them. Please, save us. Sanctify us. We need you. If you are willing and able to stand as we sing and worship, please do so. Pray. Worship. Do anything except be distracted away from the cornerstone. Amen.